0: All right. Good morning. Can we give the, the worship team a round of applause for leading us in worship this morning? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We good? <laughs> all right. Yeah. Just thank you guys for coming. Um, I hope that all of you guys are, are well-rested and not extremely tired from, from New Year's. Um, and also, we survived the blizzard of 2022, right? We made it through the blizzard. I'm just kidding. Uh, it was very cold, but you know, I was hoping for a little bit more snow, but I'm glad we didn't get like you know 15 inches or whatever they were saying we were going to get. But it was very cold. But I really am thankful for your presence this morning. Um, I know you could have easily just slept in um, and taken the day because you're tired from staying up all night. Um, but you're here, and so just want to thank you for that. If you're new or if you're visiting, um, would you fill out one of those connect cards? Uh, they're in the seatbacks right in front of you. You could. T- fill it out. Let us know um, how we can connect with you and drop it off at the connect desk on your way out outside these doors. Um, We'll have a gift for you. Um, We just want to be able to connect with you and see how we can come alongside you in your walk with the Lord. Um, But I don't know what's worse, either being tired from from staying up all night to watch the ball drop or just existing in the week between Christmas and and New Year's. Like, that's just a weird time. Um, I saw a lot of posts about it and just calling it like the void and where people just don't know what to do with themselves. They eat a bunch of pizza and they're like, what is life <laughs> until the new year? It's not quite the end of the year, but we're close. And so I, that for me was exhausting, but, um, I'm also at home. I was at home with the kids all week and usually I'm at work. And so it's a different, you know, different atmosphere for me. Um, uh, but I had great pleasure in that. Um, so, uh, whatever reason, it's just exhausting. So I hope you guys are, uh, are like I said, well-rested and that you did have a good new year, um, that you aren't um, just dragging yourself in here. But if you are, I pray that you'll just kind of be ready to receive what the Lord has for you this morning, um, because I'm excited to share what I believe the Lord has laid on my heart um, to bring to us this morning. Um, And, you know, it's that time of year where we go around setting New Year's resolutions, uh, making plans and commitments to things that we'll keep for a couple weeks and then, you know, forget about it. And then remember six months later, oh, yeah, I had made that commitment that I never kept. Um, And, you know, that happens. Hopefully, if you made a a resolution, you're going to keep it. You're going to hold fast. But, you know, cut yourself some slack because everybody stops at some point. (laughs) Um, So, I'd like to say that I've made the commitment to eat uh, less Oreos, less cookies. Um, if you know me, you know that I um, am an Oreo aficionado; like I love them. But um, I would never make that that New Year's resolution because. That would just be terrible. I wouldn't want to do that. So I would never do it anyways. But if I was going to be, you know, responsible, that would be one I'd make, but I'm not going to. Um, and I don't want you to worry. This morning's sermon is not going to be about, you know, the cliche New Year's uh, time of just setting good goals and, and you know, here's quick... Um, five points to uh, keeping and help, you know, maintaining a good New Year's resolution list. Um, It's not going to be anything about that. Uh, But I don't think that we can ignore the sense of newness that comes um, from this time of year, um, which is why today is pretty unique. Uh, It's the first day of the year, and we get to uh, spend today with each other and with the Lord. And we also get um, to take communion later on in this service. And so you probably saw those cups on your way in. If you didn't grab one, now would be a good time to just get up and get one. Uh, It would be awkward because we're talking about it. Um, So be sure to do that. Um, But we get to reflect and remember um, the Lord and all that he's done. And coming off of Christmas um, and celebrating his arrival and then thinking of all that he endured for us to be able to remember his sacrifice, it gives this time a uniqueness that I want us to capitalize on today. And you know, speaking of Christmas, um, I love Christmas, but it is one of those holidays that uh, most people just adore, and it's super overwhelming. Uh, More than any other holiday, uh, it takes over like literally everything, everything you see. um, Towns are decorated, radio stations change their entire catalog, they just play all this Christmas music, Um, and everybody loves it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying they do that. Um, Color schemes change, there's parties, there's gifts, there's expectations on family. Anybody have major expectations on family? Um, There's money, spending lots of money, and then there's the stress that comes along with it. Um, sometimes there's heartaches, sometimes there's good memories, and sometimes there's painful ones that holidays bring about. <clears throat> and there's just a lot going on in this time of year. And now we know that it's during this time of year that we remember the Lord, we remember and celebrate his arrival of Jesus. Uh, but I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we said that we didn't have to remind ourselves uh, a little more often and a little more frequently than we would like to, um, that the point of this time of year and that time of year, the season of Christmas, was to remember Christ. And it typically gets lost, even though it's right in front of us. It's even in the name, Christmas, Christ Mass, you know, a gathering to remember Christ. And it's like the weight of the season just takes over and we have our hearts set on many things that if we aren't careful, we can miss it right? And that's kind of where we find ourselves here in the beginning of Mark chapter 3. So I'm going to invite Lauren Foxworthy up, and she's going to read our scripture passage for us in Mark chapter 3. So if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning as Lauren makes her way up here? Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, Stand before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Thank you, Lauren. Let's pray together real quick. Father, we're grateful, Lord, for um, your word, um, for um, the, the lessons and the, and the stories that you leave for us to, to know you and to know your heart and know your character. And I pray, Lord, that you'd be with us now as we dive into this text. Would you reveal what you want to us? And would you help us to get out of the way? Would you get rid of the distractions or anything that would hinder us from receiving from your word this morning? And may we commit this service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thank you. <clears throat> so, If you can remember back before we started our Advent series that we were just in, um, Pastor Adam covered for us um, a time when Jesus was teaching the Pharisees a thing or two about the true Sabbath, right? And so he was out stirring up the Pharisees by going through the fields, uh, some grain fields with his disciples, and they were picking some heads of grain. And the Pharisees saw them, and and they asked, why are they doing what is unlawful? To which Jesus uses that moment as an opportunity to teach them right? And so obviously here in our passage today, we see that he's back at it, right? He's back at it. Only this time we find ourselves inside the synagogue. And just so you know, like a synagogue um, is just a Jewish building designed for worship. It's like their church. It's a church building similar to what we have here. And inside this building, there is a man with a shriveled hand. And it says that some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so them is just the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were a group of religious leaders who were the leading authority figures for the Jews, right? And so I would argue that leading up to this moment, Jesus knew, he knew the man with the shriveled hand was there and he knew that the Pharisees were there and he knew what was going to happen and that's why he went there. He was intentional in that, right? So um, I would like to talk a little bit about the Pharisees here, not too much, but these guys, why are they trying so hard to stop Jesus These guys, they were supposed to be the ones upholding God's law and his word, teaching the scriptures to God's people. They were supposed to be the ones who would recognize and accept and even welcome the Messiah when he came. But his coming actually revealed something vile in them, like something sinful. Their hearts had been hardened and now they valued their position over the Lord. They valued their power over God. And so Jesus, he threatens all that they had come to value and cherish, which was themselves. Right? They were jealous of his growing popularity. They were jealous of his miracles and his authority in teaching the scriptures. Every move he made, they were envious of and they were threatened by. So they watched him closely. Every move that he made, and they were intent on finding anything that they could to use to incriminate him. Anything that would discredit or disarm Jesus And like I said, Jesus is aware of what they're doing, so he calls out to the man with the shriveled hand. He tells him to stand up in front of everyone. And so what I want us to do is look at the difference between this man with the shriveled hand and the Pharisees as we kind of unpack this passage. And so he puts this man on display in the middle of the synagogue. That would be like if I called one of you up here to stand in front of us and to display whatever shameful thing you had, <laughs> right? Just to, It would be kind of a really awkward and uncomfortable moment. But Jesus wasn't doing this to draw attention to him, to humiliate him. He wasn't trying to embarrass the man, but to use his life and to use his affliction and the miracle that was about to happen and the miracle that he was about to receive as a witness and testament to everybody who would see it. But before he does this, before he proceeds with this miracle that he's going to do, he asks a simple question, and it's one with kind of some outlandish statements in it even. Um, And so he, he asks, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And so the Jews, they had this highly developed oral tradition called the Talmud, right, which interpreted the Mosaic law, and this is the law that he's questioning when he asks, is it lawful? This is the law that they're following, the law that they followed and kept. Um, But what they had done is they um, they had made rigid pronouncements on what could legally be done or not done on the Sabbath. For example, one could stabilize an injured person in an emergency, but could not improve their condition. Isn't that crazy? That you could stabilize them, but you can't really help them that much. You can't make them better. That's too much. And so what Jesus does here his question it reveals the heart of the problem the priority of their cherished traditions above the human needs and this is always true of what we find in like legalism right it values the structure rules and traditions over everything and so he waits for an answer he waits for an answer but it's silent no one speaks They had so much to say about Jesus, so much to say regarding the law, so much to say all the time, yet in this moment, they have a chance, and they don't take it, because they had evil intent in their hearts. Such a question shouldn't even be needed, because the answer is obvious. You shouldn't do evil or kill, period. Whether or not it's on the Sabbath is is irrelevant, right? That applies to the Sabbath as well, but still, they don't have any answered, and so he had exposed the evil in their heart. Um, of the Pharisees by asking that simple question. And we have to remember that it wasn't a private question. It was public. It was in this synagogue in front of everybody. He wasn't asking them their opinions. He was asking a question in front of everybody, challenging them to give a response. And so you could probably hear the murmurs in that silence. Do harm? Kill? Did he just ask that? Is it lawful to kill a person on the Sabbath? Of course not. The law is thou shalt not kill done period yet they were silent and so he looks around and it says that he was angered he looks around in anger and he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and this verse should really stop us in our tracks really time that the bible speaks of what angers the lord and grieves him should stop us right our ears should perk up and we should want to know what it is that grieves the heart of our savior we should want to learn that stuff what angers is this heart And so we see that for them, it was the hardness of their hearts and the reality that awaits that or that awaits them. And anytime we read that God was grieved, we really should just pause and find out more. Um, And so I was just thinking about a couple other verses that um, we have examples of the Lord being grieved. Um, So I wanted to share a couple of them. There's many of them in the Bible, but I got three of them here. So the first one is Genesis 6, 5 through 6 says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Psalm 78, 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. That was God's people. Isaiah 63, 10, but they, again, God's people rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he became their enemy and fought against them. And so what I found is that there's a common theme in what grieves the heart of God. And it's sinful disobedience. Sin grieves the heart of God. He hates it. And it's what wreaks havoc on his creation that he deeply cares about. He deeply cares for it. And that means he deeply cares for us. So here we see that this is a deeply internal and personal heart problem. And we so often want to blame others, right? We want to blame the devil for our faults and sins. We want to blame maybe our overextended lives or use that excuse of I'm only human. But Jesus pointed clearly to the problem and is that it's a matter of the heart. In the Pharisees, they had a major heart problem, right? Their hearts were hard and cold to Christ. And they put all their stock in this external checklist that they had developed, looking the part, but being completely empty and void. And they were unwilling to see truth because of their commitment to protecting themselves and their tradition. And so he feels, Jesus, he feels deeply, and in his response to this, he heals the man's hand. So he tells the man to stretch out his hand. And this was probably painful for him, but he didn't complain, he didn't question, he didn't say, wait, it's the Sabbath, don't heal me. He just obeyed, and he was completely restored in front of everyone. And so I just want us to picture the scene here. We have center stage. In this church, you have Jesus and the guy you see all the time with the crippled hand, and then off to the side, you see the guys who run the show, who run everything, being left speechless by a simple question. And then you see this miracle, and then you see the faces of these Pharisees as they begin to turn red, and they scowl. And then after the hand is healed, they storm out. What a scene. While you sit there in amazement at this miracle and the compassion that Jesus had on this man, and then compare it to the men who were charged with caring for God's people, how would you leave that place? Probably thinking, what in the world just happened? I mean, this is a major deal, right? Uh, it, It really was a big moment. Luke 6, verse 11, um, it tells us that the Pharisees, that they went out in a rage, he says. And the words there literally means out of their minds. That's how they left, just furious and out of their minds. And then they, they consulted with the Herodians on how they might kill him. That was their move. And just so you know, the Herodians, they were a group of politically radical people who the Pharisees, they would never associate with, except on this one matter. How do we kill Jesus? How do we get rid of this guy? And so the Pharisees, they ignore the miracle that was performed before their own eyes because they couldn't see past their own pride. And not only that, what should have led them to worship led them to anger. Talk about self-centered, utter blindness. So there's several things I really want us to pull from our text this morning. Um, the first is this, and we're going to dive into it, but legalism builds your kingdom, not God's. Builds your kingdom and not God's. And we'll unpack that. So the Pharisees, they had built up for themselves quite the life. They had power and authority. They had success. They had money. They had added rules and regulations to help guard all that they had accumulated. Guard their status. And they had taken the law and removed the heart of God from it. Right? They had turned it into an external checklist. Now, from a bird's eye view, we can see how this obviously isn't right or good, and that none of us would really just outright say that we're in favor of a system like that. But when you examine your life, when we examine our lives, we can probably find some things that would line up with this way of thinking. Typically, we find it in the form of traditionalism. So traditionalism is a form of legalism that has created laws and expectations out of human traditions. Whether their traditions develop from, you know, certain understandings of scriptures, denominational traditions, group traditions, personal traditions, whatever they are, they're typically not commands that are in the scriptures, right? They're just things that we've allowed to become binding and sacred even, not because of the Lord, but because it's what we like. It's what we've always done. It's what we find the most comfortable. And so the why behind them becomes more personal comfort and convenience rather than for the Lord. And so what applies to legalism generally also applies to traditionalism. So legalism, it teaches a couple things. In a nutshell, human effort is necessary to gain acceptance and or union with God. And it also teaches that human effort is necessary to maintain acceptance or union with God. And so it focuses on the external to gain and maintain that relationship with God. And we know that it's clearly an internal matter of the heart. And so it begs the question that we have to ask ourselves, that I've had to ask myself, what traditions do I keep and why do I keep them? Now, I'm not talking about like the tradition of going and eating with your grandma on Christmas Eve. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the spiritual traditions that we keep. Why do we keep them? And it's really hard to examine the things that we do for the Lord and then ask, am I really doing them for the Lord? It's a hard question. We have to wrestle with it. Or am I doing it for me? And the Pharisees, it was clear that their observance of the law and their unwillingness to do what was right and good, even on the Sabbath, displayed their heart's problem. Right? Our Lord made it clear that to neglect to do good Um, For another in need, even if we had a religious excuse for not doing it, was to do evil. James 4.17 tells us, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So we saw the pride of the Pharisees kind of taking over, which leads us to our next point, that pride is blinding and hostile. Pride is blinding and hostile. It's blind to the Lord. It's blind to others. It's blind to really anything other than itself right? The Pharisees couldn't see past anything before them. They only sought to protect their position. And even when Jesus performed this miracle before them, they ignored it altogether. And I honestly wish I could say that I was just far from this, but there are certainly times when I'm so focused on what I want or what I want to have happen that I'm blind to what the Lord is doing right in front of me. I'm blind to everything because I'm so consumed by me. Right? So are we blind to the word of the Lord because we have our own agenda that we are consumed by? Like so much so that we even feel anger at the Lord for interfering with what we have going on. Don't mess my stuff up or you'll set me off. Right? Pride is hostile to the Lord because it recognizes his authority over its own and it's threatened by it. So it builds up walls for defense, and then it's weaponized to fight anything that would threaten it. And you can feel it. I feel it. And I know for myself that even when I have something that I'm wanting to accomplish and it's continually on my mind, I become more irritable to anybody who would distract me, whether it be grace or the kids or the Lord, just irritable because I have this thing on my mind and you're distracting me from it. But you may not know it, but oftentimes those distractions that we're so frustrated with could be the Lord saying, hey, what you doing? Why are you so bogged down by this? Why are you not looking at me? And this is exactly what we covered in our Advent series just weeks ago. Our eyes are down. Our field of vision is narrow. And if we could only look up and see what the Lord has done and that he's continuing to do right in front of us. But we can't because we're so focused in. Now, you compare the legalism and pride of the Pharisees to the faithful obedience of the man with the crippled hand, and you see kind of a stark difference. So he was asked to do something hard, even painful for him. He hasn't used that hand. It's shriveled. It's, it's probably painful to even touch. So he's asked to move it. But the benefit was for his good and for the glory of God, and his life was being used as an object lesson to show us that what we need is faith. Faith and that our lives are not going to be painless, and that things will be hard. And even in the midst of hardship, when we place our full confidence in Christ, we'll be all right. But all right by the standard of God, not by ours. And the example of faithfulness that's displayed, it will be evident to all who come in contact with us. So do we understand that our lives are being used this way? Do we understand that obedience to the Lord Could be painful, probably will be painful, but worth it. Now, what I'm not saying is that you have to have more, or that if you have more faith, you will get more of what you want. Or that if you just believe hard enough, that the answer that you want will become true. Um, because what that does is it feeds a toxic idea that's made its way into Christianity. Um, that you get what you want for and ask for if you have enough faith, and then you don't get what you ask for if you didn't have enough faith. And I think applied to small things, we could look at this and think it's not that big of a deal. But you start applying that to big deals, life and death. You're praying for a loved one to get better and they don't. And that could embitter you towards the Lord or even make you feel like it's your fault because you didn't ask with enough faith. That's just not how it happens, right? What Jesus shows us in our passage is that our faith will end in our miraculous healing. For all of us in Christ, will be made whole when we are face to face with Christ. But it doesn't mean that we will just be guaranteed everything that we need in this life to be painless doesn't mean that life gets easy. You think about Paul when he pleaded with the Lord to take the thorn from his flesh and the Lord's answer to him was no. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And do you think that Jesus answered no to Paul because he didn't have enough faith? I don't think so. I think what we are supposed to do while we are here is faithfully obey Jesus. Which leads us to our third point. Our obedience reveals our faith and shows our love for God. So what we see here is uh, taught to us in Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew, and the pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. And so we have the wise person who is obedient to the word of the Lord. He chose to build his life on hearing and doing the will of God. And when trials and hardships come, as they certainly will, like the man with the shriveled hand, he doesn't fall. He is secure because his foundation is solid compared to the foolish man, however, who hears the word of the Lord, but doesn't act on it. He lives too in the same fallen and sin-stained world. So he too faces trials and, and, and hardships and having no foundation, he collapses. And so we see this happen with the Pharisees. The Pharisees heard the words and saw the work of Jesus, of the Lord, but they failed to apply them or even believe them. And then you have the man with the withered hand, on the other hand, who obeyed and was blessed for it. And so you could think, well, isn't this obedience just the same thing as legalism? Are we just saying the same things that you just obey God's laws and his word, and then you're good? And that's not what we're saying, because our obedience is a direct response to the love that we've been shown and then in turn feel for our Savior. It's how we display our love for Christ, not how we earn it. You get the difference, right? It's not how we earn these things from him. It's a display, and it's, it's taught to us in Scripture. So we'll look at John 14, verses 21, then 23 and 24. It says, The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. And then verse 23 and 24 says, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but from the father who sent me. And then first John five says, this is love for God that we obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. So in other words, to obey God is not some obligatory difficult task that we have to do. It's just the overflow of our hearts and our gratitude for all the Lord has done for us. And at the end of the day, there's just a lot of cost avoidance really built into legalism and traditionalism. We want to protect ourselves, protect our comforts, protect everything that we've come to value and love and enjoy and avoid all costs. But genuine faith and love for the Lord understands that there will be costs. And sacrifice and following him, it might be painful, but it's better better. And as a result, others will see what the Lord can do and who he is through our faithful obedience. And lastly, as we wrap up, I'd like to talk about this miracle of the hand. So the man's hand, it reminds me of the gospel and the regenerative, reconciling work that it accomplishes. Like this man's hand, humanity has been cursed and plagued with sin, dead in our sins. And just as it was with the man's hand, there's literally nothing that anybody could do about it. Nobody could fix it. Jesus was the only one who could heal the man's hand and in the same way. Jesus is the only one who could pay the price that nobody else could afford. And he did it by going to the cross and giving up his life so that we might believe and receive full forgiveness for our sins, receive the Holy Spirit and the hope of heaven and eternal life, taking what is dead and making it new and alive. And so we're about to go into a time of communion and it's in these next few moments as we take the bread which reminds us of his body that was broken for us and then we drink the juice that reminds us of the blood that was shed for us that we should consider Christ. So if you're here and you've never believed in Jesus, then my only plea for you this morning is that you would believe in him as your savior, that you would accept him as your savior. And I can't promise and I never would promise that you doing that is going to fix your problems, fix your life fix your pain, fix your sorrow. I just can't make that promise to you. But I can tell you and assure you that Jesus loves you and that he died for you and that he offers this eternal hope that you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will receive peace that passes understanding because that's found in him. So for the rest of us, First and foremost, in this time, I just want us to remember the gospel of Christ. Remember what he endured and why he endured it. And let that bring you to a place of reverence and awe before him. And then I think it's important for us to consider our lives and to ask ourselves if there's anything in our lives, any attitude that would reflect what we see that angers and grieves the heart of God and ask him to remove that from us. Remember that Jesus threatens a prideful heart and all that it values and cherishes because out of everything, he is the only one worth valuing and cherishing, cherishing at that level. And there's nothing else that can claim what is Christ's. The gospel is something that only he can offer us. So if there's things that are keeping you from your faithful obedience to the Lord, surrender them to him now as we go into this time of communion. Let's, let's pray together. God, I'm just grateful, Lord, for, um, for you and your heart. And what you've taught us in your word. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room, Lord, if they don't know you, if there's anybody here, God, would they tell you right now that they believe in you, that they believe um, that in what you did on the cross, that you died to save their souls, Lord. You died for their sins, and they would accept you as their Savior, and they'd let one of us know. For the rest of us, God, I pray that you would just help us wrestle with our lives. Would you search our hearts, God? Reveal anything unclean in us and pull it from us. I pray that you do that work for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite one of our elders up, Greg Starkey. He's going to lead us in our time of communion.